Good morning. Shalom. I'm hearing you guys over here. Let's try this. Boker Tov. Yeah, okay. All right. That means good morning. Let me hear you say it. Oh, <laughs> clever bunch. All right, yes. So uh, I am really privileged to be here. I want to I thank the church for allowing me to substitute for David Brickner. I've been praying for him. In fact, I just got a text. My wife and I were going to visit him yesterday, and his wife said he's having a bad day. And I only saw the beginning of the text just now as I was just about to walk up here and because uh, we were going to go today, and we're not going. She said he's still struggling, and I, I don't know what the rest of it is. So if you remember to pray for him, please do. Um, most of you should have a photograph of him and his wife. If you have one of these cards, do you, do you have one? Great. Well, if you would take it out, I'm going to tell you to not only look at his photo so you can know that I'm not him, but I, I want you to also consider filling out the, the card so that you could get our free newsletter. We have uh, a relationship with this church and your pastor emeritus, Phil Howard, probably longer than any church maybe in the world. I don't know. I know Phil and our founder, Moish Rosen, go back to before our ministry was even established and uh, uh, what do we call that? Incorporated, you know, 1973, you go back to the er 71. So um, we don't want to have just a relationship with this guy or with the church, you know. We want a relationship with individuals. We like to relate and get to know people. So uh, if you would fill this out, don't worry about the top part, which is an offering part, because there's no offering for our ministry this morning. The church graciously gives us an honorarium. So, uh, just go ahead and fill the bottom part out. We want to send you our newsletter. You can put it out at our table that's in the lobby where my wife and I will be. Afterwards, we've got a few books and things there, but you can drop your card off there. Now, <clears throat> it was mentioned in my intro, and thank you for that very nice intro, that I oversee our newly launched ministry to the ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities. Uh, it's a very challenging ministry. I don't expect you to be too familiar with what the ultra-Orthodox Jewish world is like. So I brought a two-minute video to give you a, a deeper understanding, a little glimpse. So let's go ahead and watch that now. They live in many major cities around the globe, but remain one of the most unreached people groups in the world. Haredim ultra-Orthodox Jews. They live in tight-knit neighborhoods and isolate themselves from the rest of society to remain faithful to the Torah. Haredi life is shaped by centuries of rabbinic law which instructs them in what they eat, how they wash their hands, and even which shoe to put on first. Strict gender roles define everyday life Usually men spend their days studying Torah, while women earn money and care for their large families. Their community avoids outsiders, and because of a history of persecution and proselytism, they're especially wary of Christians. Still, a very few have encountered the gospel and come to believe in Jesus. They live as hidden believers within their community. If they tell anyone about their faith, they could lose their reputations, 
their livelihoods, and even their families. The Haredim are the most unreached of God's chosen people. They've been largely unknown, overlooked, and dismissed by believers as too difficult to reach. But they're not unseen by God. And God is doing something new. Believers have begun reaching out to love, serve, and pray for the Haredim. We need your prayer and support for this pioneering work. Will you help us reach them? Amen. I hope you will help us reach them. I don't expect you to... By the way, uh, you saw buses there with Hebrew on the side, etc. This was all shot in the United States. This is not from Israel, folks. These communities are... In, in large cities in the United States, primarily New York, but elsewhere as well. And uh, they are so unreached, I am not exaggerating to say that to try to bring the gospel to this unreached people group is as difficult, if not more so, than going to any Muslim country in the world. Period. You know, in Islam, Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is a positive figure. In ultra-Orthodox Judaism, Jesus is the devil. Now, I'm you know, they don't say the devil, but he's a blasphemer, he's a heretic. To try to talk about him to these folks is, is very different than even talking to a Muslim. It's, they're a very unreached people group. So, um, again, if you fill this out, we will give you information here and there so you can pray. In fact, I may have forgotten to mention in the first service, and I'm kicking myself now, we produced, um, I forget how many pages, about a 50-page, 60-page prayer journal. It's beautifully produced, lots of photos and uh, information to understand this community and how to pray for them. It's a brand new piece. I will send it. I'll make sure to do this, even for the few that filled it out in the first service. If you fill out the card, I will make sure you get a copy so you can learn more and pray for this community because it's only through prayer and God's breakthrough that we can reach any of them. By the way, though it mentions secret believers, I'm currently working with one fellow who is uh, a secret believer from this community. He is so on fire for the Lord. He's a brand new believer. He wants to be baptized. We're planning it for December 29th. And he wants to grow, and we're trying to send him off to a, a Christian discipleship community. Anyway, it's, it's kind of blowing my mind, but it's very, very exciting and very kind of shh, undercover. So, um, but that's not what I'm here to talk about primarily this morning. I'm here really to talk about Hanukkah and Christmas. Now, I want to know, how many of you know someone who's Jewish? Wow, a lot of you. That was the same in the first service. I am very encouraged by that. You know why? Because I will probably, I would love to, but I will probably never meet your Jewish friends or neighbors or co-workers or even family members, but God has put you in their lives if you will take the step and perhaps share your faith with them. My hope and prayer for you is that you would do that. Um, you know, God has... You know, this song, I kept thinking to myself, man, that song, Mary was the first to carry the gospel, and it's what a great, you know, kind of gospel song that is. I'm thinking, we didn't do that in synagogue growing up. Nothing even close. But uh, my wife leaned over and she said, 
Is that theologically correct? Was Mary the first to carry the gospel? What about the prophets who announced beforehand? Well, we're not worrying about theology here. It's a great song. But um, her, my wife's point is very well taken. God in the Old Testament and through the prophets gave us information and anticipation and hope about who this coming Redeemer would be, who this Messiah would be. And when Jesus came, as we read in the New Testament, he fulfills all of those things. And so the Old and New Testaments are, are joined at the hip, hand in glove. What other good metaphor is there? But it's one continuous story from Genesis to Revelation. And even with these holidays that I'm talking about this morning, Hanukkah and Christmas, there's a connection now you're thinking, come on, what kind of connection? What, that they're both in the month of December? Is that it? Yes, I'm done preaching. Nice knowing you. No, there's a much deeper connection. But, um, you know, growing up Jewish, which I grew up in a tradition, not like these folks, but I grew up in a conservative synagogue in the Chicago area, I didn't know anything about Jesus. Nothing, except that when my mother was angry, she would say, Jesus Christ. That was the only time in our home when I heard his name. But uh, when it comes to Hanukkah, though, I have lots of memories. You know, the candles burning, and my mother chanting the blessings over the candles, begging my parents one year for a certain toy that I wanted. You know, when it comes to toys, when it comes to gifts, since becoming a Christian at the age of 18, I learned something. There's a world of difference, a difference, not a similarity or a connection, a difference between Hanukkah and Christmas when it comes to gift giving. In the Jewish community for Hanukkah, it's not a major holiday. It's a significant one, but it's not major. We don't give big gifts like most of you do at Christmas. You know, we'll give some socks. <laughs> Happy Hanukkah. Here's some socks. We'll give maybe something else on that level. When I first celebrated Hanukkah, as, I mean, I became a believer in May, in December, my very first Christmas, I was so excited. I bought for my girlfriend, who now is my wife, I bought her a little wooden toy boat and I bought her a little picture of a lion because she liked lions. And I was so thinking, oh, she's going to really love this stuff. Well, then we go, I go to her family and everybody's starting to open the gifts and she gives me her gifts. So she's like beaming as she gives me this gift. And I open it and it's a silver, real silver pocket watch. I'm thinking I'm dead. I'm dead here. I'm dead here. I gave her a wooden toy. You know, this is not going to go over well. Um, she was very nice about it. Wow, I'm starting to cry thinking about that first Christmas. I don't know if it's embarrassment, sadness, or what it is. Or if I got something in my eye. Lots of memories. Lots of memories. So, okay, Hanukkah and Christmas. They're both in December. In fact, interestingly, Christmas is the 25th of December. Hanukkah is the 25th of the Hebrew month of Kislev. Okay, not a big deal. But uh, lights are a big part of it. We don't have lights on Christmas trees, but we have the menorah that we light one candle for each night of Hanukkah. Uh, gift giving on a different scale, but it's part of both holidays. But those are all superficial 
connections between the holidays. There's something actually much more deep than any of that. But uh, to get there, I want us to turn to John chapter 10. I'm going to read uh, John chapter 10, starting in verse 22. By the way, this is the only place on either side, either half of your Bible, where Hanukkah is mentioned. It's not mentioned in the Old Testament. Why? Because the events of Hanukkah took place historically in that intertestamental period between the close of the Old Testament and the birth of Christ. So in these years here is where the events of Hanukkah took place. So that's why we only read about it in the New Testament. So let's read uh, John 10, starting in verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. Feast of Dedication is Hanukkah, that is Hanukkah. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews therefore gathered around him and were... Um, sorry, I lost my place as I was grabbing my water, and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me, but you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I'm going to pause to take a sip, because that statement is very powerful. Well, it says in response, verse 31, the Jews took up stones again to stone him. So Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him. Now when it says the Jews here, by the way, I've got to interrupt. It's talking about the Jewish leadership. Um, you know, Jesus is Jewish, right? And, and everybody in this story is Jewish. The Jews here refers to the leadership. And he says, um, I showed you many good works. Which one of them, uh, you know, why are you stoning me? They said, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a mere man, make yourself out to be God. Continuing, Jesus answers, has it not been written in your law that I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you're blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. If I don't do the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do them, though you don't believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. Woo! What a story. Now when you come up to, against a story like this, as well as many others in the Scripture, You've got to ask yourself two questions. The first one is pretty basic. The second one is a very complicated question. The first one is, what's going on here? Now, the second complicated question is, listen up. What's really going on here? <laughs> okay? So we're going to ask both of those questions, and I'm going to try to answer them. First, what's going on? To understand what's going on, I want to start with 
saying that this story, as John tells it, is quintessential John. In other words, what do I mean? He's not like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who we call the synoptic gospel writers. You know, they all kind of see with the same perspective and tell the story in a similar way. John took a different approach. He goes up 35,000 feet in the air, and he gives us the big picture of who Jesus is. He deals with these major themes, the deity of Christ, the nature and the ramifications of faith versus unbelief. Um, you know, think about how he starts out his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and, 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 and it was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, these are major theological themes. To all who believed in him, he says, he gave the right to become the children of God. This is what... So the first 18 verses of John's gospel, how many of you like music? Come on, everybody likes music. Okay. Well, in, in some kinds of music, there's something called an overture. I'm not a musicologist here, but I know enough to know that in a, in a classical setting, an overture <clears throat> contains the, the melodies of the entire evening's worth of music. And like a medley, you hear notes of them or little pieces of all the rest of the evening's music in the opening overture. Well, those first 18 verses of John's gospel is like the overture to the rest of his gospel. All these major themes he mentions here in John 1, he then unpacks through the rest of his gospel. That's kind of how it works. So what do we see going on here in John chapter 10? What's at stake here is, is Jesus the Messiah or not? You know, they say, get us out of suspense. Just come on, dude, tell us. Just come out with it. Well, Jesus, when they say that to him, he says, you didn't hear me? I've told you. I mean, how many times have I told you? If you turn back to chapter 9, you'll see with the healing of the blind man, over and over again, there's this thing that repeats. It's interesting, but how many times had they heard his words what were his words you know well i forgive you of your sins or go and be healed i mean these are the words of god these are human beings don't utter these words but he says my sheep hear my voice apparently maybe some of these leaders weren't his sheep because they didn't hear him how about his works he would walk on water he could quiet a storm he could turn water into wine had they not either observed some of that? Maybe some of these guys were guests at that wedding in Cana. But didn't, if they didn't see it, they probably heard it through the grapevine, but I guess they weren't his sheep because they didn't believe. Well, Jesus equates himself. In case there was any ambiguity in his words or his works previously, he gets very clear here. And in verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. You, you can't get much clearer than that, can you? I and the Father are one. And how do they respond? Well, they pick up stones to stone him. And in response, what does Jesus do? He says, wait a minute, guys, put your stones down. You, you obviously misunderstood me. When I said I and the Father are one, I didn't mean I and the Father are one. 
No, he didn't say that. He didn't backpedal. Not at all. In fact, he goes, interestingly, to Psalm 82 as he tries to explain it to them. Now, you don't have to turn to Psalm 82, but I'll, you can go there later. I'll unpack it. Psalm 82 is a very interesting little passage where uh, the writer there, by the inspiration of the Lord, is, is uh, calling out the wicked judges of Israel to, to correct them, okay? What does that have to do with this? I'll tell you. He calls those judges in Psalm 82, he calls them by a Hebrew word, Elohim. Ooh, Elohim is also the Hebrew word for God. Why is he calling these judges in Psalm 82 God or God's plural because Elohim is a plural word? I'll tell you why. Because God is the judge with a capital J. I don't know if it's this way or this way, depending on, I'm backwards to you. But capital J, he is the judge and he gives to human beings his authority to judge in courts of law, right? Okay, all justice and judgment comes from God and we exercise it, you know, under his authority. So he calls those gods, excuse me, he calls those guys, those judges, Elohim, gods. So Jesus says, if he called them gods, how much more appropriate is it that I am called God? Because I am. You see, it's, it's kind of a, there was a, there was a type of a, um, Jewish Bible interpretation, and we use it in American language too. It's called kalvachomer. That means from light to heavy. Um, here's an example. Pretty nice Christmas tree right here, right over there, all these trees. You think that's a nice Christmas tree? You ought to go see the national Christmas tree. Woo, is that a Christmas tree? You see, I went from light to, to heavy. Or here's another one. You think your wife is beautiful? You should see mine. Well, or, or another one. I hope to get points for that later. Um, I never said that in a sermon before. All right. <laughs> or here's another one. Um, you think I could make you a pretty good dinner? You should taste the dinner that a professional chef would make for you. So you see the logic here. You go from light to heavy. If, 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 the, if in Psalm 82 the Lord called these wicked judges or those human judges gods, how much more fitting is it that I be called God because I and the Father are one? So that's what's going on here. Um, we've read this story. We get the story. Now I'm going to ask the way more complicated question, though. And here's where we're going to dig in even deeper. What's really going on here? Okay, those are the facts of the story, and we kind of did a little Bible study a little bit to help us understand. But what's really going on here? Why'd they get so mad? I mean, they could have said, you're a lunatic, and just ignored him. Why did they get so mad they pick up stones? And they're going to stone him. Well, to, to understand that, we have to understand something about Hanukkah, so I'm going to tell a little story here, and I just hope you can hang with me because it's got some history, some religion, some little bit of everything. Um, you've heard of Alexander the Great. He was a, a, a mighty Greek military conqueror who took over, you know, lands from east to west, uh, huge empire, and he died young in his early 30s, I think 32, I'm not sure, and he didn't have a succession plan. 
he died unexpectedly. So when he died, his kingdom was split into four parts, uh, one based in Egypt and Syria and elsewhere. Well, the, um, the, his kingdom in Syria was called the Seleucid or Seleucid kingdom, and their kings were, took the name Antiochus. I know some kind of Greek name. So there was Antiochus the first, the second, the third, and now for our story in Hanukkah, Antiochus the fourth. We're at about, on the calendar, about 168 BCE or BC, okay? So that's what first, first to second century BC before Jesus. Antiochus, uh, without going into every detail, he was very politically savvy guy, military, and he had aspirations of his own. And uh, he couldn't get the Jews, the Jewish people in Israel to comply with his, his program of Greek culture, etc. And so he, um, he decided to outlaw Judaism. Outlaw it. We could not circumcise our kids anymore, our boys, that is. We could not celebrate the Sabbath, the Shabbat, and the other holy days. We could not study the Torah. We couldn't keep the Jewish dietary laws. Kashrut, you know, have kosher food. And Antiochus IV gave himself a name in addition to Antiochus. He called himself Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes, if you know the language that they... It means God made manifest, or God in the flesh, essentially is what it means. And of course, Jews or Jewish people were not going to use that name about him, so they came up with a play on words, a little pun. They called him Antiochus Epimenes instead of Epiphanes. Epimenes means madman. So <clears throat> uh, now let's get back to John. Uh, oh, no, 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 a little bit more of the story. Sorry. We're, we're going to wrap up the story of the events of Hanukkah. So, you know, to tell a story, you've got to get closer. Yeah, okay. So now we're telling the story. So Antiochus used to send some of his his army guys, uh, they would normally ride elephants when they were in battle, but they would ride, you know, horses or donkeys, whatever. They would go throughout Israel to the small towns and demand that a pig be offered on an altar to Zeus, the Greek god. And in fact, he, he defiled our temple in Jerusalem doing the same thing, rendering it unusable for Jewish worship. So he goes to a little town outside of Jerusalem called Modi'in. It's still there today. If you ever take an Israel tour, well, you probably won't go there, but it's there. And um, he, they made this demand to the small Jewish community there, and it was a very tense moment. Now, in that time, the Jewish people in Israel were struggling whether to remain religiously Jewish and faithful to the God of Israel, or whether to just blend in and assimilate and become like the Greeks, you know, wrestling naked in their gymnasiums and eating pork and doing whatever the Greeks were doing in those days. So they go to this town, offer the pig, and nobody makes a move until one Jewish guy who was an assimilationist, you know, he wasn't so religious, Jewishly speaking, he says, all right, I'll do it. And there was a priest by the name of Mattathias. Now, that's the same name as Matthew, who wrote the gospel. It's a common name in those days. Mattathias, the Jewish priest who was a believer in God, got so upset, he took a knife out and he killed the Jewish guy. And then all of his sons rose up and they slew 
all of Antiochus' soldiers that had come to that small town. Then he said, to the hills, if you believe in the God of Israel and you're faithful to his law, follow me. And that began three years of essentially guerrilla warfare, warfare, guerrilla battles between the small band of Jewish zealots and the mighty Greek armies. Well, story ends with a big miracle. After three years of fighting, we won. And you see, that's the basic, um, uh, if I, I wish I could speak French, raison d'etre, something like that. If you have any French speakers here, you know, that's the heart of, of, of not only Hanukkah, but most Jewish holidays. We always say jokingly in the Jewish community, they tried to kill us, we won, let's eat. So, um, you know, think about Passover, Hanukkah, all, most of the holidays have that little outline, but it was a miracle that we were able to, to be victorious in that battle. The first thing we did then was hightail it to Jerusalem where we cleansed the temple from what the Greeks had done to you know, pig's blood on the altar, et cetera, et cetera. We had to clean it up. That took a while. In fact, the story goes that there was only enough oil in the, the lamp that hung by the altar. There was only enough clean oil for one night. But miraculously, it lasted eight days until we could find a clean enough oil. Uh, it takes eight days. And that's part of the holiday, why, we, why it's an eight-day um, holiday, and we light a candle for each day. Let's get back to, now that you're experts on Hanukkah, let's get back to, that was a little intense story there, wasn't it? Let's get back to John. John chapter 10, verse 22. It, he tells us it's the Feast of Dedication. That is Hanukkah. That's the setting. Note the, the time on the calendar. It says it was winter. We know that's when Hanukkah is. And it says that they were walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. Okay, what does that tell us? They are at ground zero for the events of Hanukkah. Hanukkah, Hanukkah means what we see in our New Testament, dedication, because they rededicated the temple to the worship of God. So they are in the very place that this entire holiday is focused on and centered around. On the day, in the place, it's, it's you know, pretty in incredible. And in people's minds, obviously, the Greeks are gone, but now the Romans are here. And they're asking themselves, you know, we, it's this, Hanukkah, Hanukkah is this story of heroes. We think of the, uh, Mattathias and his sons as being heroes. They're kind of like comic book superheroes, the Maccabees. You know, there could be a, a comic book about them. They rescued us from the bad guys, and now the Romans are here, and, and they're wondering, where is our rescue? Who's going to redeem us from our current Roman oppressors? And so they asked Jesus, are you him? Are you the Messiah? Come on, tell us. We're hoping maybe you're going to be like Judah Maccabee. So, so that's what's going on. And in that conversation... Jesus says to them, to clarify who he is, I and the Father are one. Why, in all of what's happening there, did they get so out of their minds with anger, so enraged that they pick up stones to kill Jesus? Why? Why, why, why? Well, at this point, 
the dates of Antiochus are about 190 years previously. You know, 160-something to about the year 30, whatever. Do your math. It's about 190 years. What was happening in our country 190 years ago? I don't have a clue, folks. Maybe you know. But I do know what was happening 160 years ago. You know what was happening in our country 160 years ago? The Civil War. Okay. I went to school. You went to school. We all learned about the Civil War, yeah? You know, memorize a few facts on a test. Well, I'm from Chicago. When we learned about the Civil War, it didn't, it, you know, it was nothing. For 18 years, my wife and I lived in the Washington, D.C. area. We lived in a town called Potomac, Maryland. Potomac, Maryland is located right on the Potomac River, which separates the state of Maryland from the state of Virginia. Now, in the Civil War, Maryland, because it's south of the Mason-Dixon line, Maryland is a southern state, but they fought with the north. Virginia fought with the south. We lived on that border, and we lived there until just a year and a half ago. So here we are in the 21st century. I will tell you, living there, the events of the Civil War took on a whole new meaning. I mean, people there are still emotionally invested with the outcome of the Civil War. It's a bit strange. It's kind of weird, okay? California, Bay Area, I lived here 10 years too in the 90s. We don't feel it out here. Go move over there, you really feel it. So I want you to picture this. And I wrote this, thought of this example a long time ago when I, when I was studying this passage. And in the first service, when I shared this example, I myself became very uncomfortable. And so I'm giving you a warning, like a, you know, like a movie, you know, PG-13 at least. You may get un a little bit uncomfortable as I give you this example. But it's real. And there's a point, and you'll understand in a moment. Lincoln's birthday is in about February, I think. Lincoln's birthday. Think about the Lincoln Memorial. On Lincoln's birthday, a white man notifies the press, the media, TV, radio, journalists from the major newspapers, that he's going to give a very important speech on Lincoln's birthday at the Lincoln Memorial. The, the media and the press are all there. The crowds are thick. The National Mall, if you've, you know, it's very, holds a lot of people. And he begins to give his speech. He had told the media he's going to explain uh, a very important speech about our economy. So they're all there. Everybody takes an interest because the economy is a little bit shaky. And he says, my fellow Americans, I'm here to tell you what's wrong with our economy and with our country. Our problems began when the slaves were emancipated. I'm here to call for a reestablishment of slavery in this country that we might regain our former glory. I'm kind of getting the negative chills right now. The way our society is so politically and socially and racially tense right now and divided, if this really took place, can you imagine what would happen? There would be bedlam, riots, and hostility and violence, and our country, I don't know if we would survive something like that. It's 
people would become so, they would lose their minds if somebody did something like that. That's the emotional tone that we find in John chapter 10. It's on this holiday, in this sacred place, that Jesus has the audacity to say something that rings in their ear like what they remember Antiochus saying. He said, I am God in the flesh. I am God manifest. I am Antiochus Epiphanes. And yet he wrought destruction and outlawed our religion. And now one of our own sons, Jesus of Nazareth, you come here on this holy day where we're remembering victory over that despicable character and you say the same thing he said? You think you are God in the flesh? You understand the, the, the tone of what's happening there. That's why they pick up stones to eliminate him. Now, it's this curiosity where they got stones in the midst of the temple because if you've ever seen uh, images from artists or, you know, uh, uh, of what the temple looked like, it was an impressive building with beautiful marble columns and promenades and, you know, courts, large courts and etc. Very special, uh, awesome place. There were, you're not out in a field where there's stones. You're not, you're not in some alleyway. Where did they get stones? Very interesting. The book of the Maccabees uh, tells us where they got these stones. It says that the priests, this is uh, from the days of Antiochus when he had sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple. It says the priests deliberated after they cleaned it up what to do about the altar of burnt offering, which had been profaned. I'm reading now. It says they thought it best to tear it down lest it bring reproach upon them for the Gentiles had defiled it, you know, those Greeks. So they tore down the altar and stored the stones in a convenient place on the temple hill until there should come a prophet to tell them what to do with them. It seems like they took these stones from that desecrated altar that just happened to be in some closet at the temple and they grabbed them and they were ready to take him out. It's, it's an awesome, a, a, a kind of a very strange irony of history that all these things come together this way. Folks, Jesus used the events of Hanukkah to call attention to who he is. He always wanted people to know who he is because he's the only way of life. He's the only way to the Father. He's the only way for reconciliation and for love and meaning and beauty and order, etc. So he used everything he did in life to help people understand who he was. He emphasized his works and his words, and he called people to follow him. And we saw two responses. People either believe or they don't. In fact, the, end of the, the very end of the story, uh, it talks about him going across the Jordan, and it says many believed in him there. So we see in the story, many did not believe and follow. We see at the very end, you know, just shortly, many coming to believe in him. It's the same way today, whether in the Jewish community, among your very family, or Hercules, El Sobrani, you know, whichever town you live in, Walnut Creek, doesn't matter. 
when it comes to Jesus, you believe or you don't. You, you believe in your heart or you metaphorically pick up stones. Like, you know, some of these people. Yeah, Christians are idiots. I would never believe that. That's a fairy tale. That's a myth. That's a this and that. They're picking up stones. They're making accusations. They're, they're criticizing. Let me boil it even further down about the connection between Hanukkah and Christmas. I want to, this is a little sound bite that I just love. Jesus used Hanukkah to preach the Christmas message. Jesus used Hanukkah to preach the... What's the Christmas message? The incarnation. A baby was born. Unto us a Savior is born. That's from Luke 2. In, in Isaiah 9, we read something very similar. I'll read it. Uh, Unto us a child is born. This is a prophetic look forward. Luke is a look backward at the same event. They're focused on the same point in time. A Savior was born, but from Isaiah's point of view, 700 years B.C., he says, Unto us a child is born, a son is given, and these are the names by which he will be called. Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Hallelujah. I'm going to tell you a story of a conversation I had with an Orthodox rabbi. This Orthodox rabbi worked on campuses to try to bring Jewish students to kind of like the video we saw, to very observant Judaism. And he knew I was a missionary with Jews for Jesus, and he, he actually wanted to arm himself with our arguments so that he could somehow defuse them. I wasn't a dope. I knew what his motives were, but I figured, let me talk with this guy nonetheless. So um, among the many verses we looked at, we looked at this verse, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, which is one of our coolest, best, most focused on Christmas verses, right? We hear this at Christmas time, particularly. The, the language that Isaiah uses here that he calls this child who will be born rules out that it's just a human, only a human child. Be, certainly it is a, a, a human being because the child is born, but it's more than a human being. Because So he calls him, first of all, mighty God. In Hebrew, El Gibor. This rabbi said, well, El, which is short for Elohim, that's in a lot of Jewish names. Maybe that was just this boy's name, El Gibor. You know, a lot of you have names like that. Daniel, Daniel has the name of God in it. Ezekiel, uh, Michael, there's others. Uh, they have the na short name of God. He says, maybe that's it. No, I don't think so. Why not? El Gibor is only in the Old Testament three times. It's once in the Torah, but the, the next best, like, evidence that's really great, and I was so glad to be able to say this to the rabbi, Isaiah himself uses it one page over in chapter 10, verse 21, where he says that the, the remnant of Israel will return in repentance to whom? El Gibor, mighty God, almighty God. So you figure, if Isaiah is a good writer, a good prophet, right, he doesn't want to confuse his hearers and his readers, He's not going to talk about Joe Smith in chapter 9 and another different Joe Smith in chapter 10 and you're supposed to figure out this Joe Smith is not that Joe Smith. No, it's the same guy. So El Gibor here is El Gibor there. That's number one. Then wonderful counselor, that's not like, wow, this is really 
It's a pretty wonderful sanctuary. It's not that. It's not a wonderful turkey dinner at Thanksgiving. The Hebrew word there, pele or nifla, it means full of wonder. Full of wonder, meaning it's supernatural. That word in the Bible, throughout the entire Hebrew Bible, it is only always and ever applied to God and his doings, his intervention, that they are full of wonder, and he is full of wonder. It's not like the guy's a pretty good therapist, you know? No, it's like we need a counselor who is supernatural, who knows us and created us and can reach down to the deepest parts of us. That's our wonderful counselor. Everlasting Father. Well, that kind of, I don't need to unpack that one too much. Avi Ad, right? It's not a human being that's going to be everlasting, you know, in the sense of always alive from the beginning to the, before the beginning to past the end. And Prince of Peace, Sar Shalom. In a world filled with anxiety and depression and every other kind of issue that we face that impacts us, we need royalty who can really bestow peace in our world and in our hearts. That's who we need. That's who Isaiah is talking about. That's who Luke is talking about. He has been born and he lives forevermore and his name is Jesus. Let's, let's pray, ladies and gentlemen. We're, I don't want to take you into extra innings here this morning, so let's pray. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. You are the God who speaks. You are the God who hears our prayers and answers. You are faithful to fulfill all your promises. You are a God who uses every kind of thing that we can think of to reveal who you are to us. You use holidays and traditions. You use history. You use dreams. You use visions. You, know, you use our next door neighbors. You use us. You use your word. The list goes on and on. In this season, Lord, our prayer for those of us who are Christians, our prayer this morning is that you would use us. Use us with our Jewish friends, with our non-Jewish friends. Use us to share one thing, just one thing that they might get hungry for more. Use your spirit and your love in our lives to speak to others. If anybody's here, here who is not yet a believer in Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would have used this message and my visit here this morning to draw them to Jesus and that you would help them surrender their life to you, knowing that you are who you are, the Savior, the Redeemer, God in the flesh. We pray, B'Shem Yeshua Meshicheinu, in the name of Jesus, our Messiah. Amen. Before I sit down, just want to remind you, I'll be in the back at that table with my wife. You can look at some stuff. Just come say hi. You can leave your card there if you want to get that prayer guide for the ultra-Orthodox. I want to thank the, uh, the staff here at Valley for having me. Uh, I feel so bad for David, but for me it was a, 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 a cherished opportunity to be with you. God bless you.